Very good. It tells me I'm recording. Did you get it? He did. He did? Okay, I'll yeah. give it 10 seconds. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org, to our auditorium. This is our special program series. The date is November 2, 2010. And we're back with our dear friend Ira Fistel to continue discussing what he calls, what he believes to be, the great American novel, Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Ira, the telephone is yours. Well, thank you, Robert. <laughs> uh, we're going to start tonight with Chapter 24 and go through Chapter 31 at least. Now, I don't know what we'll do beyond that, but we're going to try to do 24 through 31 uh, and finish the central section, the long central section of the adventures, uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, we talked earlier about how the novel was divided into three parts. The first section, set in and around St. Petersburg, is the first 11 chapters. The second section, chapters 12 through 31, takes place on and along the Mississippi River on the long trip from uh, Missouri down to Louisiana. And then the third section, which beginning with, begins with chapter 32, uh, is set in Louisiana at the Phelps Plantation. So we're finishing the second section, I hope, tonight, and then we'll see whether we go on from that. The seven chapters that we're dealing with tonight, 24 through 31, is it, tw is it seven or eight? 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, eight. 31, eight. It's eight chapters. The eight chapters that we're uh, dealing with tonight concern the story of Peter Wilkes, uh, the deceased Peter Wilkes, and who gets his money and his property. This is the longest section of the long middle part of Huckleberry Fett. Uh, we've already dealt with the shorter sections that come up with it, but this one is a long story. The question here is, why did Mark Twain include these eight chapters where he did? Now, actually, seven of them deal with the story of the uh, Wilkes heirs. The 31st chapter is Huck's reaction to it and what happens then. Chapter 31 we'll put aside for the moment because uh, it, des it deserves discussion all by itself. It is has been called the greatest chapter in American literature. And I don't know that it isn't. It might very well be. But anyway, let's go on with the story of the Wilkes heirs. Uh, starting with chapter 24, what happens to the king and the duke? It starts actually with Jim and a way of uh, keeping him from having to be tied up every night. The duke figures out a way to put up a sign that says, sick Arab out of his head. Uh, not harmless except one out of his head, and he paints Jim blue <laughs> and dressed Jim up in uh, a long curtain calico gown and a white horsehair wig and whiskers. And he took his theater paint and painted Jim's face and hands and ears and neck all over a dead, dull, solid blue, like a man who's been drowned for nine days. It was about the most horrible-looking outrage I ever see, says Huck. <laughs> so that saves him having to tie up Jim every time. But the big problem here is, how are the king and the duke going to make some more money? What had really pulled the money in, of course, was the royal nunchuck. But 
they judged it wouldn't be safe to do that because the news might have come down the river by this time about how they were cheating everybody by doing the Royal Nonsuch for two nights and then selling out the third night and not showing up and taking uh, the money from all the townspeople. Well, they come to a little place uh, on the river where there's a village on each side of the river and one on Arkansas side and one on the Tennessee side. And the king and uh, the duke and, the, and, and had bought new store clothes at the last stop with the money they earned from the world, none such, and some for Huck as well. And the king puts on his clothes. They were all black. And quoting Huck, he says, He did look real swell and starchy. I never knowed how clothes could change a body before. Where before, while he looked like a, the orneriest old rip that ever was, but now, when he'd take off his new white beaver hat and make a bow and do a smile, he looked that grand and good and pious, you'd say he'd walked right out of the ark. And maybe it was old Leviticus himself. Now, <laughs> Leviticus, of course, is the name of one of the books of the Bible, but not a person, but um, we can excuse that for Huck. So anyway, the king says, uh, see as how I'm dressed, I reckon I may be better arrived down from St. Louis or Cincinnati or some other big place to come into town. Go for the steamboat, Huckleberry. We'll come down to the village on her. So Huck Finn rows the uh, canoe up the, up the river with the king on board. And they spot a young man sitting on a log, swabbing his sweat off of his face, and a couple of big carpet bags by him. King says, run her nose inshore. Huck does it. And the king asks the young man, where are you bound for, young man? For the steamboat, going to Orleans. Now get aboard, says the king. Hold on a minute, and my servant will help you with them bags. So uh, Huck does. And they started down upriver towards the steamboat landing. And, of course, the young man was very happy to have a ride. Uh, it's very hot, and he's got a lot of luggage. He asked the king where he was going. King told him he'd come down the river and landed at the other village this morning. And now he was going up to see an old friend on a farm up there. And the young fellow says, well, when I first see you, I says to myself, it's Mr. Wilkes, sure. And he come mighty near getting here in time. But then I says again, no, I reckon it ain't him, or else he wouldn't be paddling up the river. You ain't him, are you? And the king here says, no, I'm Reverend Alexander Blodgett. But who's this? what's this all about Mr. Wilkes? Uh, I'm just as able to be sorry for Mr. Wilkes for not arriving in time all the same. If he's missed anything by it, which I hope he hasn't. And from this, he gets the story of the Wilkes family. Peter Wilkes had a brother, George, who lived near him in Arkansas. And he had two brothers back in England. Harvey, who was a Church of England minister. No, not a Church of England. I'm sorry. He was a dissenting minister. And William, who was uh, um, deaf and dumb. Okay. And he finds out, the king finds out from this young man all about the Wilkes family. How Peter first got uh, sick two, two months ago and didn't feel like he was going to get better. And there was three young daughters from George, uh, Mary Jane, who was 19, and Susan, who was oh, 15, I think. And um, the other one was Joanna, who had a hair lip. <laughs> which Huck always spells H-A-R-E-L-I-P, as if she had a rabbit's lip. 
So those are the three daughters of George. And George died and didn't leave much, but Peter had money, and he held property, and he owned uh, houses, and, uh, you know, he had some money. So uh, this is the situation. Peter Wilkes has died, and the king spots the opportunity to impersonate the brother, Harvey, the minister, and have the duke be the deaf and dumb brother, William, uh, who, because the, uh, they were supposed to come from England, and they haven't arrived yet. And so the king and the duke impersonate the two brothers with the aim of walking off with the estate. And it's something to be worth walking off, because Peter Wilkes had $6,000 in gold, plus the properties, the houses and uh, the slaves and all. And in other words, he, had, he was a wealthy enough man. He probably had something between ten and twelve thousand uh, dollars, which in those days would be the equivalent of probably, oh, maybe a quarter of a million today or more. So, the king has spotted an opportunity. So he pumps this young man, whose name turns out to be Tim Collins, although we don't know that till later. Um, and he tells him all about the friends of uh, Peter, Hobson, the Baptist preacher. Deacon Lot Hovey and Ben Rucker and Abner Shackelford and Levi Bell, the lawyer, and Dr. Robinson and their wives and the widow Bartley and, well, all the rest, but they're, they're the main ones. And the old man went on asking questions till he fairly emptied that young fellow of everything he knew about everybody and everything in that town and all about the Wilkeses and about Peter, who was a tanner, and George, who was a carpenter, and then uh, he says, when did, he, when did you say he died? Well, I didn't say, but it was last night, says Collins. Funeral tomorrow, likely? Yes, about the middle of the day. Well, it's all terrible. We all got to go one time or another. So what we want to do is be prepared, then we're all right. And that's when the boat, uh, they came to the boat, the steamboat, and she was about done loading and was about ready to get off, get, get going. The king never said nothing about going aboard. But when the boat was gone, the king made me paddle up another mile to a lonesome place, and then he got ashore and says, Now you hustle back right off and fetch the duke up here and bring the new carpet bags. And if he's gone over to the other side, go over there and get him and tell him to get himself up here regardless. Well, I see what he was up to, but I never said nothing, of course. And they carry out the impersonation. They got on a steamboat, um, stopped one from Cincinnati, and they were mad that they uh, only wanted to be ridden about four or five miles, but the king says, if a gentleman can afford to pay a dollar a mile apiece to be took out and put off in a yawl, steamboat can afford to carry a cannon? So they did. And they get to the town, and the king gets off the boat with the duke. And the king says, can any of you tell, gentlemen tell me where Mr. Peter Wilkes lives? And they all give a glance to each other and nod their heads. And one of them says, well, I'm sorry, sir, but the best we can do is to tell you where he did live yesterday evening. And the king breaks down crying and pats the, the they pat each other, they blubber and makes a lot of idiotic signs to the duke with his hands. And the duke dropped the carpet bag and burst out crying. If they weren't the beatenest lot, says Huck, them two frauds, the beatenest lot, uh, the lot I ever struck. 
It was enough to make a body ashamed of the human race, the way they carried on. All right, now that's chapter 24, the birth of the plot to steal the Wilkes estate by the king and the duke. The next chapter is one of my favorites. It's called All Full of Tears and Flap Doodle. <laughs> Wonderful title. That is the phrase that I used when I wrote about uh, Clemens' life. I used that phrase to describe Samuel Clemens' letters to his intended fiance, uh, Olivia. Uh, Olivia, what was her last? Well, I'll think of it just a second. Uh, in um, Elmira, New York. He wrote her all kinds of stuff about how uh, he was becoming such a good Christian for her and how, uh, how wonderful he was going to be to her, blah, 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 blah. All, to, all full of tears and flap doodle, if he uh, had used the, the line to describe his own letters. Olivia Langdon, I, I don't know why I couldn't remember Langdon for a minute. I know it as well as my own name. Anyway, they discover the three girls. The first one, the oldest, is Mary Jane. This is the beginning of chapter 25. Mary Jane was redheaded. That don't make no difference. She was the most awful beautiful, and her face and her eyes were all lit up like glory. She was so glad her uncles were come. Then there's Susan, the middle daughter, and then Joanna, the hair lip. <laughs> Love it. Well, after the the king comes up and comes forward a little, works himself up, and slobbers out his speech, all full of tears and flack doodle, till it was just sickening. Huck is sensitive to overdoing things, you know, and this really turns him off. Of course, the king then uh, exhibits all his knowledge of the townspeople and the friends and whatever. They're mostly all there, except for Dr. Robinson, and the, the minister, who are off burying somebody, and Levi Bell, who's been up in Louisville on business. But the rest of them are all there, and he wins them all over. He just has them all eating out of his hands. Peter had left $3,000 in gold to Harvey and William, and 3000 more to George's three daughters, plus a tan yard and other businesses and dwelling houses, and the slaves. And he left $6,000 in cash down in the cellar. Well, the first thing they do is go down and fetch it up and have everything squared over on board. And uh, as they were going upstairs, uh, they look at all that money and they said, the king's eyes did shine and said, well, ain't this bully or nothing? Oh, no, I reckon not. Why, Bilgey beats the nonsuch, don't it? And the duke allowed that it did. The coins are called yeller boys yellow boys or gold pieces. That's what that means. All right. This is what comes to trust into providence, says the king. It's the best way in the long run. I tried them all, and there ain't no better way. Well, then they counted the money, and it came out not to $6,000, but to 5985 5000 I'm sorry, uh, 585 Darn him. I wonder what he'd done with that $415. They worried over that for a while and ransacked all around about it. And then the Duke says, well, he's a pretty sick man. Likely made a mistake. But we can spare it. Oh, yeah, sucks. We can spare it. I don't care nothing about that. It's the count I'm thinking about. 
we want to be awful square and open and above board here, you know. We want to lug this here money upstairs and count it before everybody. And there ain't nothing suspicious. But when the dead man says there's $6,000, you know, we don't want to have 4500 or whatever it is. Hold on, says the Duke. Let's make up the deficit ourselves. And he began to haul yaller boys out of his pocket. It's a most amazing good idea, Duke. You have got a rat and clever head on you, said the king. Blessed if the old nonsuch ain't helping us out again, he said. And he began to pull, pull yellow jackets out of his pockets and stack them up. And they wound up with just barely enough money to make up the 6000 clean and clear. Then the Duke says, I got another idea. Let's go upstairs, we'll count out the money, and then we'll give it to the girls. Good land, Duke, let me hug you. The most dazzling idea a man ever struck. You certainly have got the most astonishing head I ever see. Oh, this is the best dodge. There ain't no mistake about it. Let them fetch along their suspicions now if they want to. This will lay them out. And that's why they give the money to the girls, with the intention of downing any suspicions of their, of their bona fide, of their good faith, of their legitimacy. Because they're giving away the money that was supposed to have been left to them, the 3000 was supposed to be left to them. Well, it works. Boy, does it work. They give the girls the, the money, and when Dr. Robinson comes back and tells Mary Jane that these people are frauds, he knows of an English accent when he hears one, she won't believe him. And what does she do? She takes the bag of money and puts it in the king's hands and says, take this $6,000 and invest it for me and my sister any way you want to, and don't give us no receipt for it. And so they get the whole $6,000 given to them. What a tremendous ploy. And Mary Jane is sincere. She really thinks they are her uncles. Uh, the, the effect of giving the girls the money has just what uh, the king or the duke anticipated it would be, that uh, the suspicions are wiped aside. Now that brings us to chapter 26. And Huck gets into a discussion here. She sits down and uh, starts talking to, uh, Huck rather sits down and starts talking to the Harelip, A-J-R-E-L-I-P. <laughs> um, well, he has to tell some uh, stories about this, and he gets pretty well tied up in doing it, uh, forgetting that his, uh, his uh, master, the minister was supposed to be in the pulpit. He says that, well, he sits in our pew, uh, William sits in a pew in the church. Isn't he in London? Well, yeah, where else would he live? Well, didn't you live in Sheffield? <laughs> he makes mistakes, but he lies his way out of them, gets him out. And in the course of talking here, uh, the Harelip says, you swear on, a, swear on a book that it's true, and he swears on a dictionary. <laughs> he says, that's all right. She says, um, I'll believe some of it, but I hope to gracious if I believe the West, the rest. Mary Jane balls her out and says, you've got to be kind and good to this uncle. And the first thing Huck sees is how Mary Jane is so trusting and so sweet. Uh, and he, she, he says to himself, this is a girl that I'm letting that old reptile robber of her money. 
And Susan, the second daughter of Walston, and if you believe me, she did give the hair lip heart from the tomb. And says I to myself, this is another one that I'm letting rob her of her money. And then the hair lip. All right, says the other girls, you just ask his pardon. And she does it. And she asks Huck for his pardon, and uh, she done it beautiful, he says. She done it so beautiful, it was good to hear, and I wished I could tell her a thousand lies so she could do it again. And then he says to himself, now this is another one that I'm letting uh, the uh, king steal her money. And once she got through, they all just laid themselves out to make me feel at home and know I was amongst friends, and I, I felt so ornery and low down and mean, I says to myself, my mind's made up. I'll hide that money for them or bust. Now, what has Huck done here? How is Chapter 26 so significant in this development of the story? What has he done here for the first time in the, in the entire book? Now, you'll remember that Huck uh, became desocialized in the first part of the novel, the first 11 chapters. Since then, he's been protecting Jim, but he hasn't done anything affirmative. He hasn't taken any action that would cost him anything if it fails. In no case has he taken a risk that would cost him something. And in no case has he done something strictly for Jim's benefit and not for his own. But in this case, he's not going to benefit by stealing the money and giving it to the, back to the girls. And he's going to take a very significant risk if they catch him stealing it. What Huck is doing here is an example of what Mark Twain, in his later novels, defined as truly noble behavior, noble character, noble behavior. Now, one of the things that is so true about this book and Twain's other works is that one of his main concerns has been, how do we know what's good behavior and what isn't? What standards can we use to judge our behavior? And he proposes conscience as a standard. Well, it works sometimes in his earlier books, but it doesn't work now. Uh, Huck's conscience is telling him to turn Jim in. He proposes religion as a standard. And religion has failed as a standard of behavior over and over again in this book, and will continue to do so in the future, more and more. He tries nobility of birth as a standard. But in chapter 14, where he's discussing the king and the duke, and kings and uh, crowned heads in Europe, uh, and Jim says uh, he can't see it, Huck says, well, no, no use telling him that these people aren't, aren't uh, true no nobility, that our king and duke aren't true nobility, because the real nobility don't act any better than they do. There's no distinction between the way the frauds act and the way kings act. Kings can be just as fraudulent as, uh, as crooks, and frequently are. So birth is discounted as a source of truly noble behavior. You can be a nobleman by birth and be a rat, and you can be a commoner by birth and be a noble person. What determines how you uh, act, 
how you evaluate how you act is, will you take a risk of losing something important to you at no particular gain to you, if you succeed, on behalf of somebody else? And that's what Huck does here for the first time in Chapter 26. This is extremely important because it sets up a great decision that Huck has to make in Chapter 31. If you go back over the book, look at some of the significant chapters where Huckleberry makes decisions that change his attitude or you know, maybe not even consciously realize that he's changed his attitude. In Chapter 4, he gives away his money to keep, the, keep his father rather, from getting a hold of it. Later in Chapter 7, he runs away from his father to escape his father, and he, sends, he winds up on the island with Jim. And he doesn't turn Jim in. He protects Jim. In chapter 11, he identifies with Jim to the point of saying, they're after us, not after, they're after you. And they're not after Huck. They're only after Jim. Also, in that next section, uh, on the island, he plays practical jokes on Jim. He puts the snake skin in Jim's bed, and the result is Jim gets bitten and... Uh, gets seriously sick, and Huck doesn't like this, sees that he's hurt Jim, and he resolves that he's not going to uh, do this kind of thing anymore. And yet he does one more time in Chapter 15. Chapter 15 is where he pretends that he hasn't been away from the raft, and Jim has been worried silly about him because he's disappeared in the fog. And Jim, I quoted this, I think, last week, uh, last month, uh, Jim points out that the stuff on the raft is trash, and trash is what people are who tease their friends and uh, don't take them seriously and cause them pain and cause them injury. And that's the last time Huck pays that kind of a place, that kind of a trick on Jim. He says, I took 15 minutes before I could humble myself to a nigger, but I'd done it, and I'm proud of it, and I would do it again. That's another landmark in the involving of Huckleberry Finn's character, Chapter 15. Following that comes the Grangerford, uh, you know, the Grangerford and Shepherdson feud, and then uh, Huck doesn't have anything to do for Jim for a while, but he's, he uh, notes how Jim stands, watches for him, and how Jim helps him. He then protects Jim when uh, the Duke, uh, let's see. Duke and the Dolphin come aboard, um, and Huck and uh, Huck and Jim just go along with them to keep the peace. But uh, of course, Huck knows they're not really a Duke and a Dolphin. Well, now we come to Chapter 26, and Huck takes the next great step. He not only now is interested in protecting Jim, but he has decided that he's going to go out on a limb and do something that doesn't benefit him at all the benefit of the girls and risk something, risk a severe beating or possibly even being killed by the king and the duke if they find out that he's stolen the money. And they come close to finding out because he's in their room ready to steal the, the, the gold, but he doesn't know exactly where it is when he hears somebody coming up the stairs and he hides behind the, the uh, dresses that are hanging on the wall because he couldn't find the bed Pardon me, his first instinct was to hide under the bed, and it wasn't where he thought it was. 
And so he hides behind the dresses hanging on the wall. And it's a good thing he does, because the first thing the Duke does when he walks into the room and closes the door is to look under the bed. And if Huck had been under the bed there, it would have gone very bad for Huck. Well, he overhears the King and the Duke planning on what they're going to do. And as soon as they get out of the room, he steals the bag of gold and is going to hide it someplace for the girls. And that night, in the middle of the night, he gets up and he goes downstairs with the bag of gold, thinking to find a hiding place outside the house or something. But he hears somebody coming down the stairs, and he has to he uh, has to back up against the wall in the room where the coffin is. Turns out it's Mary Jane who wants to see her dead uncle one more time, and she cries over him. Huck can't put the money away. He can't get out of the room. And when she does leave, he hears people stirring, and he's interrupted. He has to get rid of the money, and the only thing he can think to do with it is to stick it in the coffin and push it down, which he does. So his effort to steal the the gold is partly successful. He gets it away from the king and the duke, but he doesn't get it to where he can control it. And he's put it in the coffin, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's scared that when they... Uh, put the lid of the coffin down next day, they'll find the money. But they don't. The coffin is sealed. And we have the wonderful scene of the funeral with the undertaker, who is silent as a cat, and uh, takes the dog, uh, goes down in the cellar to get the dog with the rat to stop him making so much noise. And he comes back up and tells everybody, he had a rat. And that's so good, because everybody wants to know what it was all about. You know, nobody wants to just know that the dog is quiet. Now they want to know why the dog is quiet. All right, so the time comes now when Huck is unsure what to do. He figures he could write a letter to Mary Jane after they get away from town, and she will then be able to know where the money is in the coffin. But he thinks, what if somebody takes it out of the coffin? And I don't know where it is. Well, he's really in a fix. At this time, the king and the duke stay over a couple more days because... While the Duke wants to get out of town with the 6,000 cash, the King insists on selling off all the property, either in advance sale or at auction. And the first thing he sells is the slaves. The mother is sold down the river to New Orleans, and the two sons are sold up the river. And this is a terrible, terrible event for the family who never anticipated that the slaves would be sold away from home, let alone separated. And Mary Jane is really upset about this. But the king and the duke have promised to take the girls to England. Of course they're going to take the girls to England. You know that. But uh, that's what they promised, and the girls want to go. Well, they take so much time in trying to sell off every last piece of the property, including a single cemetery lot, that a steamboat arrives. And on the boat are two more claimants. A man who says he's Harvey Wilkes uh, from England and his deaf and dumb brother, William. And the chapter ends with uh, the line, here's your second claimants, here's your second heirs. And so just when Huck thinks he's had everything arranged, well, he's still in trouble. So what happens? after Huck's big event in Chapter 26. Now he has another crisis. In Chapter 27, 
sees Mary Jane crying about the family of the uh, slaves who had just been sold. She said the beautiful trip to England was both spoiled for her. She could never be happy there knowing the mother and children were never going to see each other no longer. And then she busted out bitterer than ever and flung up her hands and said, Don't dear, dear to think they ain't ever going to see each other anymore. And Huck can't stop himself. But they will, and inside of two weeks, and I know it, says I. Laws, it was out before I could think. And before I could budge, she throws her arms around my neck and told me to say it again and again and again. And so Huck has committed himself to doing something he never intended to do. Well, I says to myself, here's a case where I'm blessed if I don't look like to me. The truth is better and actually safer than telling a lie. So I says to myself at last, I'm going to chance it. I'll up and tell the truth this time. Though it does seem most like setting down on a keg of powder and touching it off just to see where you'll go to. And I says, Mary Jane, is there a place you can go and hide out for a few days? She says, yes, Mr. Lothros. So he comes back and sits down and shuts the door and comes back and sits down and says, don't you, Howard, sit still and take it like a man. I got to tell the truth, and you want to brace up, Miss Mary, because it's a bad kind and going to be hard for you to take, but there ain't no help for it. These uncles of yarn ain't no uncles at all. They're a couple of frauds, regular deadbeats. There. Now you're over the worst of it, and you can stay on the rest, middling easy. He tells the truth. He tells on the king and the duke to protect Mary Jane and her sisters. And he convinces her, and she's ready to have them arrested. But Huck's got a problem. What do I do about Jim? Well, it's a rough gang, them two frauds, and I'm fixed so i got to travel with them for a while longer, whether I want to or not. I'd rather not tell you why, and if you was to blow on them in this town, it would get me out of their claws, and I'd be all right, but there'd be another person that you don't know about who'd be in big trouble. Well, we got to save him, ain't we? Well, of course. Well, then, we can't blow on them. Saying those words put a good idea in my head. I see how maybe I could get me and Jim rid of the frauds and get them jailed here and leave. But I couldn't do it. I didn't want to run the raft in the daytime with anybody, nobody, nobody aboard to answer questions. So I didn't want the plan to begin working out till late that night. And this is why he comes up with the idea of sending Mary Jane out to somebody else's house so that the... Uh, King and the Duke won't suspect anything because he knows that they'll read it on her face that uh, she no longer trusts them. But saving Jim here is the purpose for which Huck, the, over, the extremely accomplished liar, the greatest liar in American literature, tells the truth and tells it almost without thinking about it. He doesn't really think about it. He blurts it out because he's so sorry for Mary Jane. He also writes her a note tells her where the money's going to be. I put it in the coffin. And then when she leaves, she says, Goodbye, I'm going to do everything just as you told me. And if I don't see you again ever, I shan't ever forget you. And I'll think of you many and many a time, and I'll pray for you too. And she was gone. Pray for me? I reckon if she'd known me, she'd take a job that was more near her size. <laughs> but I bet she'd done so just the same. She was just that kind. She had the grit to pray for Judas if she took the notion. There weren't no back down to her, I judge. 
You may say what you want to, but in my opinion, she had more sand in her than any girl I ever see. In my opinion, she was just full of sand. Sounds like flattery, but it ain't no flattery. And when it comes to beauty, goodness too, she lays over all. I ain't never seen her since that time that I got to see her out of that door. No, I ain't never seen her since. But I reckon I thought of her many and many a million times and of her saying she would pray for me. And if I ever thought it would do any good for me to pray for her, blame if I wouldn't have done it. Or bust. Mary Jane Wilkes is an extremely important character in this book. Not only is it her character that makes Huck tell the truth, she is a kind of person who we admire. It's, you can't read this book without liking Mary Jane Wilkes. Guess who Mark Twain used as his model for Mary Jane Wilkes? His daughter, Susie. Susan Clemens was about, oh, 11 or 12 when Mark Twain wrote this stuff. Uh, and Twain writes about um, how Mary Jane's eyes flash and her uh, face lights up, whatever. This was what Susie Clemens did. She looks like Susie Clemens, the way she's described. Not described in detail, but with her eyes and her... Um, nose curling up and her lip. Uh, she looks like pictures of Susie Clemens that I've seen. Uh, there's no question but that Mark Twain gave Susan's name, Susie Clemens' name, to the second sister, but gave her characteristics to Mary Jane. Well, the chapter ends with the arrival of the two new, uh, new candidates. Chapter 29, uh, the two are being questioned, both, both, both pairs are being questioned, and they come up with the idea of looking at the, the dead body and see what they have tattooed on his chest. The old man, uh, the real Harvey Wilkes, if he is real, says, perhaps this gentleman can tell me what was tattooed on the chest. And the king came up with something. He says, hmm, yes, it's a very tough question. Ain't it? Yes, sir. Well, I can tell you what's tattooed on his chest. It's just a small, thin, blue arrow. That's what it is. And if you don't look close, you can't see it. Now, what do you say, hey? Well, I never see anything like that old blister for clean, out-and-out -out cheek. The new gentleman turns brisk towards Ab Turner and his partner, who were the men who had stayed with the body and dressed the body for uh, burial. And his eyes light up like he judged he got the king this time. And he says, there, you heard what he said. Was there such a mark on Peter Wilkes' breast? And both of them spoke and says, no, we didn't see so, no such mark. Good, says the old gentleman. Now, what you did see on his breast was a small dim P and a B, which is initially dropped when he was young, and a W, and dashes between them, P-B-W. And he marked them that way on a piece of paper. Now, ain't that what you saw? But Ab Turner and his friend uh, both spoke up again and says, Nope, we didn't. We never seen any marks at all. Well, everybody was in a state of mind now, and they sings out, The whole bottle of them's frauds. Let's duck them, drown them, let's ride them on a rail. Gentlemen, gentlemen, says Lawyer Bell as he jumps up on the table and he yells, Hear me just a word, just a single word if you please. There's still one way to do it. Let's go dig up the corpse and ourselves look. That got them going. 
And so they all go out to the graveyard. Mr. Hines is holding on to Huck's hand and drags him out there, and they're going to dig up the body. Well, of course, they dig up the body, and they don't have even a chance to look at the uh, tattooed chest because they find the, the gold. And Huck gets away at that moment, runs away as fast as he can through the town, and as he's running through the town, he sees the light flash in Mary Jane's window. And my heart swelled up sudden like a bus, like the bust. And same second, the house and all was behind me in the dark. Was never going to be honest, to be before me no more in this world. She was the best girl I ever see and had the most sand. And as they cut loose and um, head for the river, they think they're out of trouble when... Uh-oh. I noticed the sound. I know mighty well. I held my breath and listened and waited. And sure enough, when the next flash of lightning busted out over water, here they come, just laying to their oars and making the skiff hum. It was the king and the duke. So I wilted right down onto the planks then and give up. It was all I could do to keep from crying. All right, that's the end of the action in the, Wolf, uh, the Wilkes episode, but the outcome takes two more chapters. The king and the duke come back aboard. The king goes after Huck, but Huck says, I didn't do anything, you know, and the king can't prove anything. Meanwhile, the king and the duke start suspecting each other for being the one who took the, uh, the gold. The duke says, you better blame sight, give yourself a good cousin, for you're the one that's entitled to it most. You ain't done a thing from the start that had any sense in it, except coming out so cool and cheeky with that imaginary blue arrow, Mark. Oh, that was bright. That was down bright bully. It was the thing that saved us. If it hadn't been for that, they'd have jailed us until the Englishman's luggage come, and well, then the penitentiary, you bet. But that trick took him to the graveyard, and the gold done us a still bigger kindness. For if the uh, excited fools hadn't let go all holts and made that rush to get a look, we'd have been sleeping in our cravats tonight. Cravats warranted to wear and longer than we'd need them. That is to say, they'd have been hanged. But then, the king says, and we reckon the nigger stole it. Yes, said the duke, slow and deliberate and sarcastic. We did. Half a minute, the king goes out. Well, at least was, I did. The duke says the same way. On the contrary, I did. The king says, looky here, Billswater, what are you referring to? The duke says, pretty brisk, well, when it comes to that, maybe you'll let me ask, what are you returning to? Oh, shucks, says the king, very sarcastic, but I don't know. Maybe you was asleep and didn't know what you was about. Oh, right up on this cursed nonsense, says the duke. You take me for a blame fool. Don't you reckon I know who hid that money in the coffin? Yes, sir, I do know you know, because you've done it yourself, says the king. It's a lie. The duke went for him. King sings out, take your hands off me, leg on my throat, I take it all back. Remember, the king is about 70, and the duke is a young man of maybe 35, much stronger. The duke says, well, you just own up first that you did hide that money there, intending to give me the slip one of these days and come back and dig it up yourself and have it all for yourself. Well, wait just a minute, duke, answer me this one question, honest and fair. If you didn't put the money there, say it, and I'll believe you and take back everything I said. 
You old scoundrel, I didn't. You know I didn't. There, now. Well, then I believe you, but answer me only just one more question. Now, don't get mad. Didn't you have it in your mind to hook the money and hide it? And the Duke never said nothing for a little bit, and then he says, Well, I don't care if I did. I didn't do it anyway. But you don't had it in mind to do it. You'd done it. And then he almost chokes the, the king, and the king began to gurgle and gasp, I own up. Well, Huck was very here, glad to hear him say that. <laughs> if you deny it again, I'll drown you, says the duke. It's well for you to sit there and blubber like a baby, fitting for you after the way you've acted. I've never seen such an old ostrich for wanting to gobble everything. And I had trusting you all the time like you was my own father. You ought to be ashamed of yourself to stand by and hear it saddle on a poor lot of knickers. And you never said a word for them, would he? Makes me feel ridiculous to think I was soft enough to believe that rubbish. But there's another reason for this. This line about uh, you put it on the niggers and uh, never said a word for him. What is this preparing? What happens uh, that Huck finds out about from the Duke in the next chapter? Well, he finds out that the king has taken Jim and sold him for $40. He's taken Jim and sold him for $40, sold him back into slavery. The king has no, no conscience when it comes to selling Jim, and we know it from the way he talks about uh, the, the niggers uh, in, this, in this chapter that leads up to it. All right, this brings us to chapter 31, The Great Decision, The Great Chapter. The title of the chapter is You Can't Pray a Lie. And it involves Huck sitting on when he finds out what happened. He sees them sitting with their heads together at the wigwam. He doesn't like the look of it. We judge there was more trouble coming. Something was brewing. Well, he and the Duke went up to the village and hunted around there for the king and found him in a saloon. Uh, a lot of loafers bullyragging him and threatening him, and he's real drunk. And the Duke began to abuse him for an old fool, and the king began to sass back. And then they were fighting again, prepared for the last chapter. And I lit out and shook the reefs out of my hind legs and spun down the river road like a deer, for I see our chance. And I made up my mind it would be a long day before they ever see me and Jim again. I got down there all out of breath, loaded up with joy, and sung out, Set her loose, Jim, we're all right now. Want no answer. Nobody came out of the wigwam. Jim was gone. I set up a shout and another and another one and run this way and that in the woods, but it weren't no use. Old Jim was gone, and then I sat down and I cried. I couldn't help it. But I couldn't sit still long. I went out in the road trying to think what I could better do, and I run across a boy walking and asked him if he'd seen a strange nigger dressed so-and-so, and he says, Yes, where? I says, Down to Silas Phelps' place, two miles below here. He's a runaway nigger, and they got him. Was you looking for him? I says, You bet I ain't. I met him in the woods and uh, scared. Well, I reckon there's $200 reward for him. It's like picking up money. Yes, it is, and I could have had it if I'd been big enough, said the boy. What did I see him first? Who nailed him, says Huck. Oh, it was an old fellow, a stranger, and he sold out his chance in him for $40 because he's got to go up the river and can't wait. Think of that now. You bet I'd wait if it was seven years. Well, maybe his chance ain't worth no more than that if he'll sell so cheap. Maybe there's something ain't straight about it. But it is, though, straight as a string. I see the handbill myself, the one the Duke printed several of us hounds back. 
tells all about him to a dot, paints him like a picture, tells the plantation he's from down below New Orleans. No rebuy, there ain't no trouble about that speculation. Say, give me a chalk tobacco, won't you? I didn't have none, so he left. I went back to the raft and sat down in the wigwam to think, but I couldn't come to nothing. I thought to I wore my head sore, but I couldn't see no way out of the trouble. After all this long journey, and after all we'd done for them scoundrels, here it was all come to nothing. Everything all busted up and ruined, because they had the heart to serve Jim such a trick as that and make him a slave again all his life, and amongst strangers, too, for a forty dirty dollars. What does this remind you of? What biblical story does this remind you of? The betrayal of Jim for $40. The betrayal of Judas uh, for $30. 30 silver pieces. The word betrayal here, you could not, you know, you, you use it, uh, Clements uses it, um, but obviously the suggestion is this is akin to the betrayal of Jesus by, uh, by Judas. Judas. Yeah, the only thing that's different is the amount. It's $40 yeah. instead of 30 pieces of silver. Well, once I said to myself, it would be a thousand times better for Jim to be a slave at home, where his family was, as long as he got to be a slave. So I'd better write a letter to Tom Sawyer and tell him tell Miss Watson where he was. He had a good impulse there. He figures, well, better for Jim to be a slave at home. I'll do something for Jim. But I soon gave up that notion for two things. One, she'd be mad and disgusted and being so ungrateful for leaving her, so she'd sell him straight down the river again. And if she didn't, everybody naturally despises an ungrateful nigger, and they'd make Jim feel it all the time, and feel oh, he'd feel ornery and disgraced. And think of me, it would get all around that Huck Finn helped the nigger get his freedom. And if I was ever to see anybody from that town again, I'd be ready to get down and lick his boots for shame. Well, that's just the way a person does a low-down thing and don't want to take the consequences of it. That was my fix exactly. My conscience went on grinding me, and the more wicked and low-down and ornery I got to feeling. And at last, when it hit me all of a sudden that here was a plain hand of providence slapping me in the face and letting me know my wickedness was being watched all the time from up there in heaven, while I was stealing a poor old woman's nigger that had never done me no harm, and showing me that there's one out there always on the lookout who ain't going to allow no such miserable doings to go on just so far and no further. I most dropped in my tracks. I was so scared. Well, I tried the best I could to kind of soften it up somehow for myself by saying I was brung up wicked, so I wasn't much to blame, but something inside of me kept saying, there was the Sunday school. You could have gone to it. If you'd have done it, they'd have learned you there that people that act like I've been acting about that nigger goes to everlasting fire. What's his conscience telling him? That he's done a terribly evil thing by helping steal Jim away from Miss Watson. Anybody think of the evil thing that the society uh, society countenances by by recognizing slavery? Which is the greater evil? Stealing a slave out of slavery or the existence of slavery in the first place? <laughs> which is the greater evil? Well, there's no yeah. question which is the greater evil to us. Yeah. But to uh, the people in the South in the 1840s, they didn't sure. see the evil of slavery. And this is one of the themes that goes through Twain's work over and over again, particularly seen here, but in many of the other books. The idea that people don't see what's in front of their noses. They only see what they want to see. And they don't recognize reality. They get themselves so wound up 
and uh, what they think is their, you know, their, their society and the standards of their society and the morals of their society, they can't see evil in front of their noses. And that's what's behind the coal of Huckleberry Finn. The great discovery that Huck makes is not that he's doing good by saving Jim. It's that he decides that he's evil. He's a bad person because society is telling him a bad person. So he might as well really be a bad person and steal Jim out of slavery again. Oh, my. Huck never thinks he's doing a good thing when he steals Jim out of slavery. He does it for personal reasons. He does it because he likes Jim, because Jim is like a father to him. Jim is like a family member. But he doesn't think it's right. He thinks it's wrong to steal Jim out of slavery. So what he is doing in this chapter, he's thinking about it. Made me shiver. I made up my mind to pray. See if I couldn't try quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? Martin, I used to try and hide it from him, nor from me, neither. I know very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin, but way inside me, I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go right to that nigger's owner and tell where he was. But deep down inside me, I know it was a lie, and God knows it. Can't pray a lie. I found that out. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be, and didn't know what to do. Last I had an idea, and I says, I'll go write the letter, and then I'll see if I can pray. Why, it was astonishing the way I felt as light as a feather straight off. My trouble's all gone, so I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and I sat down and I wrote, Miss Watson, your runaway nigger Jim is down here two miles below Pikesville. Mr. Phelps has got him, and will give him up for the reward if you send. Huck Finn. Well, I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking. What's the contrast here? What is the uh, opposition? He sets up, the author sets up a uh, dichotomy between praying and thinking. <clears throat> praying is essentially a selfish act. Huck would be praying for his own sake, for he to make him feel better. Thinking, I went on thinking, and got to thinking of our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day, in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms. We are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling me so I'd go on sleeping and see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog and when I come to him again in the swamp up there where the feud was and such like times and he'd always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could think of for me and how good he always was and at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard and he was so grateful and he said I was the only friend Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up, held it to my hand. I was a trembling, because I'd got to decide forever between two things, and I noted. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath. And then I says to myself, 
All right, then I'll go to hell. Tore it up. <laughs> yeah. The greatest line in American literature. Mm. Huck Finn believes that he is sacrificing not only his reputation in society, his position, his good name as a white southerner, his life, if need be, but eternity. He's willing to accept eternal damnation as the price of stealing Jim out of slavery. This is an incredible, incredible decision. How many people would, for the sake of someone else, willingly go to hell? And that's what Huck thinks he's doing here. That's why this is such a tremendous and powerful book. Because Huck is willing to sacrifice everything, including eternity, for the sake of another human being, an outcast, runaway slave, in a society in which slavery was approved, and which runaway slaves were, were the worst kind of people. <sighs> Those awful thoughts and awful words, but they were said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. Shoved the whole thing out of my head, said I'd take up wickedness again, which was more in my line, being brung up to it. And for a starter, I'd go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again. And if I could think up anything worse, I'd do that too. Because as long as I was in and in for good, I might as well go the whole hog. And then I sat down thinking about how to get at it. Thinking as against praying. Huck starts thinking. And he thinks he's going, he's going to go out down to Phelps Sawmill. He's going to see, go find Jim. Well, he meets the Duke. The Duke was sticking up a playbill for the Royal Nonsuch, just like the other time. I was right on him before I could shirk, and he looked astonished and said, Hello, where do you come from? And then he says, Where's the raft? Got her in a good place? I says, Well, that's what I was going to ask your grace. Then he didn't look so joyful. He says, What was your idea for asking me? He says, well, I says, when I saw that king and that doggery yesterday, I says to myself, we can't get him home for hours till he's sober. So I went loafing around town and put in the time and wait. And got a, he wound up chasing a sheep for 10 cents. And when I got there and see that Jim was gone, I says to myself, they took my nigger, the only nigger I got in the world, and now I'm in a strange country and no property, no more, no nothing, no way to make my living. I sat down and cried, slept in the woods all night. What did become of the raft then and Jim? Poor Jim. Blamed if I know, says the Duke. That is, what's become of the raft. The old fool made a trade and got $40 for Jim. And when we found him in the doggery, the loafers had matched half dollars with him and got every cent but what he'd spent for whiskey. And when I got him home late last night and found the raft gone, we said, that little rascal stole our raft and shook us and run off down the river. You notice he thinks of it as our raft. <laughs> I wouldn't shake my nigger, would I? The only nigger I had in the world, the only property? Oh, we never thought of that, says the Duke. Fact is, I reckon we'd come to consider him our nigger. Yes, we did consider him so. Goodness knows we had trouble enough for him. So when we see the raft we're going, and we flat broke, what nothing but for it, but to try the Royal Nun shuts another shake. I've been pegging along dry as a powder horn ever since. Where's that ten cents you got? Give it to me. Well, I had considerable money, so I gave him ten cents and begged him to spend on something for me to eat and give me some because it was all the money I had, and I had nothing to eat since yesterday. Never said nothing. Next minute, he whirls on me and says, Do you reckon that nigger would blow on us? We'd skin him if he'd done that. How can he blow? Ain't he run off? 
No, the old fool sold him and never divided with me, and the money's gone. Sold him, I says, and begun to cry. He was my nigger. He was my money. Where is he? I want my nigger. Well, you can't get your nigger. That's all, so dry up your bubber. Looky here. Do you think you'd venture to blow on us? You? Blame it if I think I'd trust you. He stopped. But I never see the duke look so ugly. The duke looked so ugly out of his eyes before. I went on whimpering. I don't want to blow on nobody. I ain't got no time to blow. I got to turn out and find my nigger. Glasty says, I'll tell you something. We got to be here three days for the world, none such. So if you promise you won't blow and won't let the nigger blow, I'll tell you where to find him. So I promised. And he says, a farmer by the name of Silas. And then he stopped. You see, he was starting to tell me the truth. But when he stopped that way and began to study and think again, I reckon he was changing his mind. And so he was. He wouldn't trust me. He wanted to be sure of having me out of the way the whole three days. So pretty soon he says, man bought him was named Abram Foster. Abram G. Foster lived 40 miles back in the country on the road to Lafayette. Huck, of course, has thought with the Duke as if he were reading the Duke's mind. He knows exactly why the Duke is saying what he's saying, and he knows it's all, all a lie. All right, I can walk in three days, I said, and I'll start this afternoon. No, you won't. You'll start now, and don't you lose any time about it either, nor do any gabbling on the way. Keep a tight tongue in your head and move right along, and you won't get in trouble with us, you hear? That was what I wanted to hear. I wanted to be left free to work out my plans. So clear out, he says, and you can tell Mr. Foster whatever you want to. Maybe you can get him to believe that Jim is your nigger. Some idiots don't require documents. At least as I've heard that's such down south here. And when you tell him the handbill and the reward's bogus, maybe he'll believe you when you explain to him what the idea was for getting him out. Go along now. Tell him anything you want to, but mind you don't work your jaw between here and there. So I left and struck out for the back country. I didn't look around, but I kind of felt like he was watching me. But I know that I could tire him out of that. I went straight out in the country, as much as a mile before I stopped, and then I doubled back through the woods towards the Phelps place. Reckoned I'd better start into my plan straight off without fooling around, as I wanted to stop Jim's mouth these fellows, until these fellows could get away. I didn't want no more trouble with their kind. I'd seen all I wanted to with them, and wanted to get entirely shut of them. And that is the end of Chapter 31 and the end of the Central Section. What has Huck done? He has gone from being a part of the society that uh, accepts slavery, back in St. Petersburg, from being a moneyed member of that part of society, from being, quote, civilized by living in Widow Douglas's house, and Miss Watson and Widow Douglas are teaching him uh, to be a good boy and uh, sit straight, not smoke in the house, and all these other things, and teaching him about praying and all. He's gone from being that to being a free agent, so to speak, disconnected from society, both uh, mentally, financially, and physically, moving away from the town, getting out uh, first on an uninhabited island, Jim, and then on the river, on the raft, away from the shore and society altogether. The Eden on a raft. And now he's gone one step further. He started... Uh, by being sorry for the murderers on the uh, uh, Walter Scott, the would-be murderers on the Walter Scott, and he had arranged for the ferry boat captain to go up and uh, take care, take them off the wreck before it collapsed, except it didn't, but he tried. 
and then he goes on with the how the Grangerfords and the um, and he's appalled by the violence of the Grangerford and Shepherdson feud, shaken up by the fact they're all killed, all his friends. He goes further down the river, he meets the Duke, King and the Duke, and now he has actively taken action against the King and the Duke on behalf of Mary Jane and her sisters, even though it benefits him nothing and causes him a risk. And now, at the very end of the river journey, he has committed himself to stealing Jim out of slavery for a second time, even at cost him internal damnation, and he's going to do it because he feels the, uh, the personal impact of his relationship with Jim. And he's going to do it whatever it costs. He has now essentially declared war on the society of which he was for a while apart. See what's happened? Yes. And all this has happened in the course of the first two sections of the book. Uh, disengages from society, observes society from the river, sees the worst and the best, and he does see the worst and the best, and now has actively taken up war against the central institution of the society that he's among. And we'll see how that plays out when we do the last 11 chapters. All right. Let's see. Uh, Bonnie, do you have a comment or a question? Actually, I don't think I do. That was really thorough. That was that was great. I mean, I was the obvious, the perception of reality, what what we right in front of our nose, that thing, and then the analysis of of Huck was terrific. Ira, it's very good. I will say uh, one thing, uh, yeah, if I may, ahead. Bob, and that is that um, I think another important thing in this book is, um, especially in this part, obviously, is Huck's connection to conscience and truth, uh, because he was making a choice to do good, as you said, to be noble for somebody else outside himself and beyond himself. And no, with no guarantee, he had no reason to believe anything would come of it. He just wanted to do a good thing, and that's how life is. There are no guarantees. Well, he, doesn't, even have, if he, was yeah, gonna, he doesn't have any guarantees. He thinks the only guarantee is he's going to hell. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to say. He was going to go to hell. He just said, I don't care. I'm going yeah. to, what's right is right. I'm going to do it. And, and he doesn't think it's right because his conscience tells him that. His conscience tells him that the right thing to do is to tell on Jim. To tell on Jim, yeah. Now, some Buddy. interesting things uh, come up from this. You wonder, how did Mark Twain come to this? Why did he write this? Uh, he had an experience himself that uh, dealt, dealt with this. Sometime between 1881 and 1884, he wrote a piece called uh, The Carnival of Crime in Connecticut in which he, Mark Twain, murders his conscience. His conscience is a little green man who's always giving him problems, always giving him difficulties. And so he murders his conscience, and he feels so good afterwards. Uh, he, does, he does all the things he's always wanted to do, as bad as other people think they are, and he does them, and he feels great about it. In Huckleberry Finn, later on in the book, we'll come to Huck Finn's famous line about conscience. Uh, if, if I had a conscience, uh, like a yellow dog, I'd have, I'd kill him, I'd strangle him. You know, if my conscience were like a yellow dog, um, yeah. conscience is not a reliable guide to good behavior. How does he know this? Because Twain himself was raised in a slave environment. His father owned a slave. He yes, saw his father's 
you saw slaves being beaten, uh, and he didn't see anything wrong with it because there was nobody to tell him there was anything wrong with it. Everybody in St. Petersburg just went along with it. This was the way it was. Slavery was the rules of the game, and uh, that's the way it is. And it wasn't until after he had become an adult and left Missouri and left the environment that he grew up in that he began to see the enormous evil that slavery was. And nobody ever thought of it that way. Nobody in his, nobody in his family thought of it that way. He never saw it that way. Uh, William Dean Howells, who was his best friend later in life, said that he was the that Clemens was the most desouthernized southerner he had ever met. <laughs> Can we say that Jim, though, is his conscience? Is that saying too much for Jim, giving him too much credit? Because what no, it's Jim's not. Yeah. What's yeah, in the Jim's center of the book? Simple. We talked about this last time. Yeah. One of the two things in the center of the book is Jim's regrets over the way he mistreated his daughter, not understanding yes. that she was deaf. Yes. That's not conscience. How, what is uh, conscience? Conscience is the socially instilled values of what's good and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't no. conscience that he was worried about. He was worried about his own behavior because he didn't see what was in front yeah. of his face. There you he go. didn't realize that she was deaf. And that's another of Twain's you know, um, themes. Refusing to see what's in front of your nose. The nose. Seeing only what you're expecting to see or trained to see again. And I can say, after 38 years in doing talk radio, I can tell you that people don't hear what you said. People don't, they don't hear what you said. They hear what they expected you to say, yeah. or they hear what they thought you were going to say, what we want or they to hear what they wanted you to say, right. or they, they hear, hear what they, they didn't want you to say. What? What was it, Bonnie? They hear what they're about to say. They hear what they're about to say. Um, you know, because they're 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 almost their um, conversation with themselves in terms of what they're about to say themselves is what they're really thinking about. Oh yeah, about. we hear what we no, want to hear. You're right. Yeah. yeah. But the point is that they, you know, people don't open their eyes anymore, and they open their ears. No. How true. true. We fight that battle. And yes. The, this is one of the reasons why Mark Twain is such a great writer. Wow. Because the things he writes is this book about slavery? No. No. It's not a diatribe against slavery. That was done by Harriet Beecher Stowe 40 or 50 no. years earlier. Mm -hmm. Slavery right. was dead and gone 25 years by the time mm -hmm. he wrote this book. Mm -hmm. 20 years. But right. what it is against, what it is pointing out, is the attitudes, the kind of thinking or lack of thinking, the kind of prejudices that make slavery possible. Mm. What's behind slavery? Behind slavery is the thought that a black man is different from a white man. He can't, he can't be as good as a white man. Therefore, he must be a slave, uh, and we'll, we'll treat him that way. And by setting up uh, a law that you couldn't educate a black man, what do you do? You make a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, very I'm good. Sure and it all, comes, it, it all comes from ignorance, from fear, from prejudice, of, from hating something different because you fear it and don't understand it. And those things haven't changed. Look at the Arizona uh, alien, alien law. Alien law, yeah. Mm -hmm. Same mm -hmm. thing exactly. Huh. If those people were, uh, let's say, white Anglo-Saxons from Canada, would... you think that law would have been passed? No, not at all. No way. No. Sir. no. Yeah. Bonnie, did you have a comment before oh, we... I was, just I was just going to say that um, 
that brings up, I think, one of the most interesting things about the Civil War, because uh, in one of the, I think, one of the biggest struggles in the Civil War is the idea of inferiority and superiority, um, because of course people in the North who felt, um, you know, they may have had servants, but of course they could say they could make they could say, well, we have servants, and you know, it's, it was a whole different status in, in you know in all in all ways, and they could say, well, we're superior, we're superior. It was one thing that I think the the South was always trying to, but, but you know, the South was always struggling with this idea of um, you know living down. Uh, you know the fact that they had had slaves, and so it it just it became an issue nobody could ever win. Mm. Well, think about that. Uh, yeah. Except that uh, you know the north had, the northern uh, servant class wasn't treated all that well either. No, they no. weren't. But at least they, were they weren't. They yeah. weren't treated any better. But the but the people no. in the north believed that because they were servants and they weren't they weren't slaves in the same sense defined the same way. All they right. were they yeah. were superior. Yeah. But what about be. wage slaves? Yeah, there's another well, there type of slavery. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, about paying somebody less than a minimum, less than a, a living yeah. wage? Right. And then blaming them for being poor. Yeah. Very good. But you can make yeah. all kinds of same kind of thinking. By what you call it. Same yeah. kind of thinking. Let's see mm-hmm. if we can sneak a question before sure. we go here. The, the audience is sure. sitting here. Of let, course. let me see who we have. Hold on. Uh, do we have a question in the audience? You've been very patient. This has been a great discussion. Uh, who seeks the floor, please? I agree with Bonnie. I think Ira did a, a fantastic job, and I don't have any questions. Is Don still there? Yes, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I was kind of interested in the distinction he was making about prayer and thinking, and that prayer was something selfish. I it was really a uh, very unique uh, idea. Let's see what Ira has to say about that. Is prayer selfish? Up Way back in the first three chapters of the book, where Huck uh, sees the widow Douglas pray, and the widow Douglas says she should, he should pray, and maybe he'll get a fish line. Mm-hmm. And he prays and he gets the line, but he doesn't get any hooks. <laughs> and he begins to realize that uh, this is selfish. What's he, what's he praying for? And then he's told he's supposed to pray for, uh, for good things for, uh, for other people. And he's, he says, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't always work. People pray for somebody and, uh, and bad things happen to them. Uh, he sees prayer, and I think this is Clemens, really, Twain uh, speaking. Uh, he sees praying as an act of essentially selfish character in that you are praying, at least often, Praying for yourself or for somebody you want something for, but that, in a way, is praying for yourself too. Mm-hmm. As against thinking, thinking is not necessarily for yourself. Uh, thinking can be uh, a rational process in which you consider many different things and, uh, and try to uh, analyze them as they are for the real true value. Praying is essentially not thinking. And he sets up this antagonism between the two. And uh, those are the two poles between which Huck vacillates in chapter 31. Between praying, which uh, he thinks he, well, he knows he can do now that his conscience is, is salved and he thinks he's doing the right thing by sending the letter to uh, Miss Watson. Now he knows he can pray. But he doesn't want to pray because he starts oh. thinking 
about his relationship with Jim and what Jim has done all these these months and years, you know. And so he sets up praying as the opposite of thinking. And we, in the next chapters, we have the coming of Tom Sawyer again, and we'll deal with that the next time we get together. Oh, yes. Uh, and I re- we'll probably do it after the holidays, but I have a happy holiday season, and we'll come back to this. Uh, with January, you think? Yeah. You think I'll, of January, be, Bob? Yes, yeah. I'll be calling you on that. Yes. All right. Well, we'll, we'll thank finish you? the book at that point. Uh, okay. What you've got ahead of you is a rollicking 11 chapters. Yes. Some of the funniest writing anybody ever put on paper. Yeah. On yeah. top of that, it is also extremely significant, well-organized, and very much related to the rest of the book. It is not, as Hemingway called it, just cheating. And here is where I differ from nearly every other Mark Twain scholar in saying that I see these last 12 chapters as intimately, intimately related to the rest of the book and the only possible convincing close to this book. Uh Think about it this way. If you're Mark Twain and you have finished chapter 31 and you've got Huck ready to assault society and and steal Jim out of slavery, how do you end the book? (sighs) Think about that question until the next time we talk about it. I will because I want to be convinced on that that it's the greatest part of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Iris, thank you and have a great holiday season. Great fun as always and thanks very much for inviting me and uh, you guys have a wonderful holidays too. You too. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. (laughs) Oh, he hung up before I could say thank you. But I know that he, we all appreciate him. Yeah, I I want to be convinced that it's the best part of the book and that it's intimately connected with the rest of it. Senna, you've read the book and uh, with Tom, it is funny. I'll give you that, but oh my. I don't know. Just so much to do about nothing, in my opinion. But I'm willing to keep an open mind, and uh, uh, let's see where he takes this. So we'll finish it next time. I know that because it, it moves fast and rapidly. You guys are great and very patient. He, he throws a lot at us, and uh, you guys are wonderful. Thank you for being here. Don't forget Books and Beyond tomorrow in the Books and Beyond room at 8 o'clock. Uh, Suzanne Torin, the narrator. Another narrator, and she's good. I'm reading a uh, mystery book by her, read by her, uh, James Patterson book, and she's a very good reader. She'll be interviewed tomorrow. Mm. I'll have to go on to Bard and put her name in and see all the books she's narrated for because I don't remember her name at all. I wonder if I've ever heard her. But anyway, I thank you, Bob, for presenting this to us and bringing Ira to us. It's wonderful. It's like being back in college. <laughs> yes, it is. Torin, T-O-R-E-N. Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, Torin. And I've never heard of her either. She has 139 books up there. And I'm reading a mystery, if Don's still there, by uh, the, the the murder club, whatever it is, Lindsay Boxer and such. Listen, i got to run, and I thank you guys. Thank you for being here. And I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Look for your recording in Dropbox. Well, thank you all, and good night. Where'd you 